Father, we're grateful for the morning of worship that we've already had, and we ask that in this time together, as we um, seek to order our thoughts and as we seek to order our lives according to your uh, triune character, who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be, I pray, Lord, that you'll give us clarity. This is a difficult subject, Father. You are a difficult subject. And uh, we ask, Lord, that you'll give us wisdom and humility as we uh, dive into the deep end of the pool of who you are. And, Lord, I thank you for those who are here. Uh, May their hearts and their minds be fed this morning uh, from your word and from the very source of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome. Um, There's seats that are around here. It seems appropriate, to, at least to my mind, that we'll spend three weeks on the Trinity. That, that seems to be right. Um, and, we'll, and we'll culminate on the third Sunday, which I, which I believe will actually be Trinity Sunday. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to do this with you all. Um, you know, I'm not good at titles. I've, I've, I've said this in other contexts. And so when, when Gil asked me, what, you know, what should we title this, I try to do something inviting and provocative, but... The Trinity is just all I kind of came up with. Um, so the, I, if there's anything that has the potential um, to be rather esoteric, uh, a little idiosyncratic, or um, on the surface, at first glance, irrelevant, it, it could be a three-week kind of engagement with the Trinity. Now, that seems a strange thing to say, actually. But um, you think about the way in which we order our lives and the way in which we order our thoughts about God. Um, how do we think about it in relationship to God being triune? His, 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 the fact that He's revealed Himself as Father, as Son, and, and Holy Spirit. And this is a very large topic. And it's a topic that has caused an enormous amount of debate all through the history of the church, whether it was Arianism, Arius was the 4th century, and now we call him heretic, 4th century heretic who actually argued that there was a time when Jesus was not. Um, he's a little bit higher than you and I on the created order, but nonetheless he was a created being at some point in time and space. Uh, that was uh, reacted to with a strong and resounding no um, from figures like Athanasius, uh, this comes, and, and when I said the Trinity seems to be somewhat obtruse and, and, and esoteric, that would be the case, I think, in a lot of churches, but not so much in ours, or at least those who are within a liturgical tradition. I've given some thought to that this week and hope to do some, mo- some more as the weeks go on. But we think, we live, we pray, the way in which we come together, we worship, you realize this, don't you, is shaped by the triune identity of God. That's how we live. That's how we pray. Um, today we said, did we not, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, tis now and will be forever, world without end. Amen. I mean, that was a kind of 4th century Trinitarian fight song. I, 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 you can kind of hear the trumpets going. That's, that's what it was. I mean, you had on, the, on the left side of the riverbank, the Arians were saying there was a time when he was not because there was a preconceived notion of what godness had to be. And therefore, when you introduce other persons into that godness, that let the whole thing fall apart in a philosophical way. Arius didn't, didn't allow for that. 
And then you had on the other side of the riverbank, Athanasius and his crew uh, giving their fight song, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was, it will be forever. I mean, this is a, this is a very large subject matter that has dominated Christian thinking for a very long time. And it always seems to arise within the life of the church a resistance to Trinitarian thought. You have, um, you have the, the uh, Arians in, the, in the, the fourth century. You have Socinianism that arises in the Reformation period. You have Unitarianism that comes later. I mean, this is, this is an alive issue. And it's important because, at least to my mind, and this is not to my mind, I think within the history of, the Christ, of Christian thought, the doctrine of the Trinity is not one doctrine among others. It's not one to be picked out and say, well, let's think about doing a course on Christian doctrine at the Advent. And we'll do something on redemption. We'll do something on creation. We'll do something on the Trinity. We'll do something on ecclesiology and the church. It doesn't work that way within the fundamental framework and the fundamental place that the doctrine of the Trinity has within the life of the church. This is ground zero. Or let's put it in a different way. The doctrine of the Trinity frames the way in which we engage the whole of Christian thought and Christian life and Christian practice. All of it. It's extremely important. Why is it really important? It's really important because what we're talking about here is God. right? I mean, we're talking about God here and who God has revealed Himself to be. Um, for those of you who were with us during this four-week series on the history of interpretation over at Cranmer House... We ended with uh, the theologian Karl Barth. Barth brought a lecture in the early part of the 20th century on the Bible, and it was called the New World of the Bible, or the Strange New World of the Bible. And what Barth basically argued was, when he went into the Bible, he thought that he was going to find himself, rules for living, the brotherhood of man, that sort of thing, which is all very good. But what he was surprised to find was the tyrannical way in which the Bible forced God on him. The questions about humanity were derivative of that primary question about God. What was the strange new world of the Bible? The strange new world of the Bible was the world of God and who God, who God is. So why is this important? It's important because we're dealing with the identity of the one God with whom we have to do. What may seem esoteric, what may seem even bizarre, what's illogical at, at a certain level is, in fact, at the heart of what forms our whole lives as Christians. Think about this. How were you baptized, end of Matthew? Go and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Think about the ways in which we marry within the church. We bless you in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. Think about the ways in which we go to a funeral within the life of the church. In the, sure and hope, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The whole of our lives, from womb to tomb, is shaped by a confession that God is one and that God's name is Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. It's significant. Um, I've said this to you in other contexts before. And it's, it's very germane here as well. What's significant about this, is, it, too, is when we're talking about God, I, I start to get nervous. I don't know where you are on, on this, but I, I actually start to get nervous when people talk about God, G-O-D, a lot, without very soon at some point in the conversation talking about 
of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The way in which God has named Himself, or the way in which God has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that is at the core, again, of our Christian confession about who God is. It's, let, me, let me put it to you in apologetic terms. It's not enough within Christian orthodoxy, within the Christian faith, what makes Christianity Christian. It's not enough to have a kind of robust belief in God, in a God, a sort of primary mover, a, a being who's out there, something other that's out there. Many, many people have that kind of belief that there's something other out there, which is great. I mean, I, I prefer that to other options, right? But when we think about it from a Christian standpoint, that is not enough because our confession about who God is revolves around and is grounded on the doctrine of the Trinity. God has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now let me sort of, I'm putting this into reverse here and then we're going to move forward. The way in which I want to do this series with you over the next three weeks, I want to spend time today um, in the Old Testament. Then I want to spend time next week in the New Testament. And then I want to spend time together, our third week together, uh, giving some doctrinal theological uh, reflections. But I have to do some of these doctrinal theological reflections on the front end. So, so buckle in, all right? I mean, seatbelts on here. I know this is, this is thick stuff. Um, for the early church, and I would say that the fourth century was the century of the early church. Our Nicene Creed comes out of the fourth century. The belief that we confess that Jesus is God of God, light of light, of one substance with the Father. That kind of theological language that came out of the 4th century was a debate, a wrangling with the Bible for the sake of the identity of God. So the Trinity in the early church, especially in the 4th century, but before this as well, the Trinity became the grammar the ABCs, the way in which we even get out of the gate to start talking about this whole Christian thing. It became the grammar by which theology and God and church were articulated. How do we talk about God? We have to talk about God and the church and the world through the grammar of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's very, very crucial. And number two, the Trinity was also the means within the early church by which all of reality was understood. Well, so let me sort of give you a big picture here. Not only was the Trinity the ABCs and the grammar for the way in which we do Christian theology, Christian thinking, Christian living, but the doctrine of the Trinity in the early church was also the way by which Christians understood the whole of reality. All of it. Not just our Christian world, but the whole of the world. And by the way, that wasn't a kind of understanding of the whole of life through the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, finding shamrocks here and there and getting, exciting about, getting excited about finding triads. By the way, and I'll say this in due course, but analogies get us into trouble really fast when you start talking about the Trinity. Um, and if you do, don't, don't, if, uh, don't, don't let this be, no guilt on you here, right? We're all struggling with grammar. But, you know, you think about how we explain this to children. I don't know how to do this with my kids. You just sort of put it out there and let them be befuddled by it. But I, but I, but I, do, I do sort of resist the, the, kind of the, the move to give them analogies that kind of make, you know, there's an apple. I heard these things growing up. You have an apple, but you've got the peel. 
and you've got the meat, and then you've got the seeds, but it's still one apple. I remember that one. Um, or, or what about, what's the class? Are those water, right? What's water? You've got water can be both liquid, and then it can be ice, and, and it can be vapor. You know, so you have this oneness and this threeness. That, by the way, is the doc- that's a heresy. That's modalism, but that's another sort of thing. Um, but, you know, so you have that. Whatever. Um, but the point I'm making is the early church's insistence that the doctrine of the Trinity had a global force to it. It was the way by which both the church was understood and all of reality was not just through finding analogies, triads here and there to say, to try to prove, oh, that, that, that's just because that's how God is. It was the way by which all of life was understood because this is who God is. And that then became the lens by which all of the world was viewed through the lens of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's how we think, it's how we live, and it's how we pray. This shapes and forms the ways in which we pray. Now, one other thing of introduction before we hop into the Old Testament. In his classic work uh, from the late 4th century, early 5th century, St. Augustine, or Augustine, however you'd like to say that, Um, But St. Augustine made a distinction at the beginning of his classic work on the Trinity between faith and reason. Now, why am I saying this to you all this morning? My my, my father and parents were here uh, last week and was mentioning to me, um, you know, after we did this lecture series at the Cranmer House, and he listens to the stuff that we've done in here before. And he says, you know, those people at Advent, they're kind of, they're smart people, aren't they? You know, they ask really good questions. I'm like, well, it is. I realize that the kind of conversation that we're having here demands a kind of knowledge and demands a kind of experience with Christian Christianity that is somewhat special here. I take that for I take that to be the case. I also realize that I'm dealing with, by and large, a rather educated audience. I get that too, and that means that you're probably having conversations for those of you who wear your Christianity on your sleeve let's say, on the front porch. You're having these kind of conversations with other intelligent people who are saying things like, you know what, that just doesn't work. And logically, that does not make sense. One, we we affirm the oneness of God, but we we also affirm the tri-personal relationship within that one Godhead. That's just not going to work. And whatever tattoo you want to put on your arm or whatever t-shirt you want to do that has all... It's it's just, it's not going to... It doesn't work logically. This, by the way, is not just a modern problem on the far far side of the Enlightenment as people have sort of come into their own uh, rational autonomy. This is not just a modern problem. This is an old problem in the life of the church. And Augustine is speaking right into that as he's making a distinction before he starts talking anything about the formal doctrine of the Trinity. He makes a distinction between faith and reason. And what is the distinction that he's making? Be careful before you jump to conclusions. I think the distinction that Augustine is making here at the beginning of his work on the Trinity is a way of helping us understand two things. Number one, there is a divide There is a chasm between the Creator and the creation. There is a a fundamental distinction theologically between the Creator and between the creature. God is God. You and I, we are not. Right? The world is not. It's not just an emanation of God's being. God is different from what He has created. He is other. He's wholly other. Right? So Augustine knew that. 
So that's one thing that I think he's getting at. There's a, there's a chasm. I would dare say an infinite chasm, at least when it comes to our own thinking ability, between the Creator and the creation. So the faith reason setup that, that Augustine gives us at the beginning of, the, of his work on the Trinity is a kind of exploration into, well, then how is that chasm um, crossed? How is it traversed? How do we get to any knowledge of the Creator if there is a chasm between the Creator and the creation? How do we get there? Reason says that we can, by our own human attempts, by our own turn to human rationality and thinking, build that bridge between the creation and to the Creator to make sense of who God is. And what happens with, with this? And by the way, this is at the heart of the philosophical world of the, ancient, of, the, of the ancient Greeks and Romans. Well, what's at the heart of this? Well, the heart of this is there become certain notions that become established about what it means for a god to be a god. But these become sort of human self-projections onto the divine. Uh, Augustine, Augustine said, that is a dead road. That's a dead-end road. To build that chasm from reason and rationality, our own human rationality and autonomy, to God's not going to work that way. Well, what is faith? Faith, the flip side of this, is a belief that the chasm is divided, the chasm is traversed by God's movement toward us. Not by our building up toward Him. They tried that at the Tower of Babel, didn't they? And if I remember correctly, it didn't go well, right? They've tried that before. But what happens? What happens for Augustine and really for, for the whole of our, of our faith is a recognition that God comes to us. That God speaks to us. That God accommodates Himself to our minds so that we can understand on some level the ineffable, the mysterious, the completely other. Do we understand who God is in His totality as He understands Himself? No, we don't. But we do understand who God is truly and really because God has spoken and He's spoken sufficiently in the person of His Son by the power of His Spirit to let us know who He is. He's determined Himself to be a God who speaks. Does it exhaust who He is? Does God's revelation exhaust that? No, it does not but it does give us a sufficient and adequate knowledge of who He is. And if that is the case, and I believe it is the case, if that is the case, then it makes the Bible so important for how we come to grips with who God is. I agree. (laughs) So, let me give you this quote here. Because we come at this from faith and not reason... Now, also, let me back up here and give you um, one other sort of conceptual tool. Another matter here as well, though, to take into account is we're not talking about the divorcing of ourselves from our own rational minds. We're not doing that. We're just saying the way in which our rational minds are ordered, the way in which we govern our reason, is by faith. That's why if you... I mean, you'd be surprised, I think to pick up Augustine's De Trinitate, his work on the Trinity, and think, you're just saying this is faith? 
I mean, th- th- he's going through deep and entrenched sort of philosophical and theological and biblical arguments for why God is triune. But the big point that Augustine is making is the way in which I order my rational mind is not by trying to traverse from this side to God, but a recognition that God has moved from this side to me and I'm going to shape my thinking in light of that. And by the way, that is an ongoing activity in the life of the church that never ceases. We never stop doing that kind of theological work where we're wrestling with, who are you, God? Who have you revealed yourself to be? And how does that impinge on the life of the church and my life in the world as well? That is an ongoing life of, the, of Christianity and Christian theology. Christian theology is not just handed to us in a nice little package with a bow on it. There it is. It's a dynamic ongoing living activity whereby we submit ourselves again and again to the words of the prophets and the apostles as we seek to understand God who are you and what do you want that's at the heart of it so if that's the case then the Bible's very important Paul McGlasson in a very good book on uh, on Christian dogmatics said the one source for the church's doctrine of the trinity the one source is holy scripture very important there's a, there's a notion out there. There's a notion that the church fathers, with the language like of one substance with the Father. This is language that you know. You confess this in the Nicene Creed every week that we do the Eucharist. One substance with the Father. That that kind of language was a philosophical abstraction that was rooted in a Greek Neoplatonic world and that really had nothing to do with the Bible. Let, let me just go ahead and put that out as categorically wrong. Right. The, the fourth century theologians, the early church fathers, were working with a kind of conceptual apparatus that they had given the day. But what were they primarily doing? They were primarily wrestling with the Bible, trying to make sense of what the Bible has to say about God, and, and trying to give an ordered account of that, given the fact that the Bible is the authoritative means by which we identify our God the way in which we pick Him out in a lineup and say, that's the Christian God vis-a-vis all other kind of competitors. That's our God. So this is very important to see that they're wrestling with, with the Bible and they're wrestling with the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Let me put it to you this way. The doctrine of the Trinity in the early church was not a battle against the Old Testament. A kind of embarrassed, flushing of the face, turning away uh, because the Old Testament just doesn't seem to measure up to our doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, the doctrine of the Trinity was a battle for and with the Old Testament, not against it. Some of the deep Bible, exegetical battleground that was going on in the 4th century was on the Old Testament. Places like Proverbs 8. Is Jesus really God? Well, Arius says, well, in Proverbs 8, you have this notion that wisdom is created. Voila! There's my Bible verse to prove that Jesus was a created being. And this was a debate that they had to have over the book of Proverbs. I mean, you think about it. If I were to give you an assignment in in the dean's class, which might mean I would never be able to come back. um, But if I were to give you an assignment and say, "Write, write something on the Trinity. And use the Bible to support what it is that you're writing. I mean, my instincts, I'd imagine your instincts, would never be to go to the book of Proverbs. I mean, I go to Proverbs to figure out how to help my kids not be foolish, right? I don't go to Proverbs to figure out who God is. But that was the kind of instinct that you had at play 
uh, within, within the early church, a wrestling with God and God's identity in, in the Old Testament. A couple other matters. I also think it's really important as we go into the Old Testament to, to, to wrestle with the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament to make a distinction between two things. Number one, to make a distinction between what the authors of the Old Testament knew, what they understood, and number two, a recognition of who God is in His being and has been from eternity past. So let, let me kind of put that out to you one more time because I, this is really important to my mind. We need to make a distinction between what the Old Testament authors actually knew. In other words, if Moses or David, not now, right, but in their historical sense, were to come into this room and we were to say, well, um, tell us about the doctrine of the Trinity, we, we have to admit that they would look at us with crossed eyes. And that, 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 noetically, within their minds, that wasn't up and running yet. But that does not take away from the fact that what they understood is not to be conflated with who God is and always is. In the fullness of time, it says in the book of Galatians, God revealed Himself. In the fullness of time, God pulls back the curtain to let us see more fully, more adequately, the, 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 the full orb character of His being and His identity and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the fullness of time. But because He has done that in the fullness of time, because we live on the far side of the resurrection of the dead, because that is the case, we can, to my mind, responsibly, and we must truck all of that Trinitarian doctrine back into the Old Testament as well. Even if Moses wouldn't have understood that, even if Isaiah might not have understood that, that doesn't mean that their understanding is to be conflated with who God always was and is. It's a very important distinction to my mind. Now, as we move into um, the Old Testament. Oh, boy. Um, yes, lots of notes. Um, okay, let me make... Uh, I'll hop into it this way. In Exodus 3, God reveals His name, right? Um, who, who, when, they, when, you, when they tell me... Uh, when I go to tell them, Pharaoh, to release you, and I tell the people that you... What, am, what do I tell them your name is? Well, you tell them, Ehyeh, Esher, Ehyeh. You tell them, I am who I am. Or, I am who I will be. Or, I will be who I will be. Right? Tell them my name. And then you go to Exodus 6.2, and it says that the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, they didn't know the name Yahweh. They didn't know that name. What they knew was uh, El Shaddai, which is a real problem. Because you just have to pick up Genesis and see that Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 builds an altar and he calls out on the name of Yahweh. Right. So, so what's going on here? Well, I don't think what's going on here is a kind of critical issue to my mind. But what I think is going on here is at the heart of the theology of the book of Exodus. And that, which by the way, we'll spend a lot of this fall um, in the book of Exodus. But, but at the heart of the theology of the book of Exodus is a revelation of the divine name. But you remember this within an Old Testament framework that someone's name was indicative of their character, of who they are. So just knowing a name, what the name is, is not necessarily to be equated with knowing the name. That is, the significance of the name. So then when we move on in the book of Exodus, right, we see I will be who I will be. I mean, let me put this in, in other words. You will know who I am. They will know my name. 
They will know the content of my name when they see me move in on the Egyptians, break their back, release them from their bondage, bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. When they see me redeem them, then they're going to know who I am. That's my name. My name is tied to my redemptive movement toward my people. We get the name of God revealed in in the context of salvation and redemption. That's where we get His name. Uh, Also, when you move on, and I don't want to steal my thunder from the fall, but the golden calf episode, great episode there in Exodus. Um, Moses is up on the mountain communing with God. They build a golden calf and they're worshiping this calf. And uh, Moses comes down. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a mess. Remember what Aaron says? Well, I don't know what happened. Just threw some gold in. This cow jumps out. And, um, it's, it's, it's a mess of a scene. And then um, and God says, well, you know what, Moses? Let's just wipe him out. I'll start off me, me and you. They're done. You know, I, I had to think about that. Moses didn't. He interceded for them. And God relented. And then all of a sudden we're in Exodus 33 and 34 where Moses is on the mountain and he asks one thing on the far side of God's relenting, on the far side of God's display of His grace, of His mercy. And Moses says, I'd like to see your glory. I'd like to see you. And and, and what does God say? Well, no one can see that and and live. And then we see Moses hiding behind a cleft of rock and the God passes by. He sees his back. And then we go into Exodus 34, and all of a sudden now, God is coming down to the mountain. And all of a sudden, God, Yahweh, begins to proclaim His name. Yahweh, Yahweh. And you're like, well, who's talking here? Yahweh is proclaiming His own name, revealing His own name. And then He goes on to say, this is My name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God full of compassion, long-suffering, kind, not quick to get angry. These are the classic attributes of God that the rabbis refer to as the 13 midot, the 13 character traits of God. What do we see there in the book of Exodus? That the revelation of the divine name, the revelation of God's identity, His being, how we can pick Him out in a lineup is that His name is most fully and properly understood in the context of redemption, salvation, and grace. That's how we know that that's our God. Did you hear the reading this morning? I didn't even plan on this. This is divine providence. But I have it right here in my notes. Did you hear the reading this morning? John 17, the high priestly prayer. What is it that Jesus says to them? What's the, well, the last verse of our reading? And I have revealed your name to them. He says it three or four times in that prayer. I've revealed your name. Well, what does that mean that, you've re- that Jesus reveals the name of God? Did they not know the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh? Did they not know El Shaddai, Elohim, all the appellations that we have for God? Of course they knew those names. It wasn't that they didn't know the names themselves, but they did not know yet fully the content and the significance of what the name means. How it reveals the character of God. And when Jesus goes from the high priestly prayer, John 17, the next chapter, where are we? We're in the Passion. He's on His way to Calvary, to the cross. And that, by the way, is where we see the mercy and the severity of God in fullest display. What is His name? Who is our God? You look at the cross and you see Him. God reveals His name in the light of His grace, His character, and His, His salvation. So that's very important. How do we know who God is? It's a soteric context. It's a salvific context. It's in the context of redemption and salvation. That is very germane to the whole of the Bible as we understand how Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father share one common identity in essence. 
Second thing I wanted to say in the Old Testament, we see that God is one. There's one God. But we also recognize in the Old Testament a plurality of persons is to be observed. That's already at play in the Old Testament. A plurality of persons. God is one. And yet it seems in the Old Testament that God can be other than Himself. A, or we see that predicates, um, um, descriptions of God that are unique to Him might be predicated on someone else and that catches us by surprise. I just wanted to give you a few of these and then um, I'll stop for a few questions. Number one. It's the angel of the Lord. It's, it's a very fascinating thing in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. Um, you have in, in Genesis 18 that this messenger shows up, the classic scene with, with Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. And these three visitors show up. Some of you may know Rublev's uh, fa- famous icon on that with the three sitting around with Abraham. And then they tell, uh, a- these visitors tell Abraham that they have a message from Yahweh. But then we blink and before we know it, that messenger is speaking. Is the, the, the three are gone, and now there's one, and he's speaking in the first person as if he is Yahweh. So the question becomes, who is the angel of the Lord there? The angel of the Lord or Yahweh? And the answer that the narrative seems to force on us is yes. That's the answer. Is it the angel of the Lord or is it Yahweh there? The answer, yes. That's who's there. That happens as well with the call of Gideon. The angel of the Lord comes. I have a message for you from Yahweh. And then all of a sudden, we go into this first-person speech, and now we don't know who, what's going on here. Who's speaking? That's very interesting. Another one. Um, in, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Uh, the, the Hebrew terms there are rum venesah, high and lifted up. Those are terms that are only predicated on Yahweh throughout all of the, of the book of Isaiah. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 2 and in Isaiah chapter 10, when the people of Israel try to lift and exalt themselves, God comes in as the great tree feller and He cuts them down. Why? Because no one is raised and exalted. God does not share His glory with anyone in, in, uh, in the book of Isaiah. But then we come to Isaiah chapter 53, that fourth servant song. And and something happens here that actually, to my mind, is still stunning. And and a lot of scholars, frankly, just sort of back away from it, the, the full implications of it. But Isaiah chapter 52 says, at the end of it says, Behold my servant. This is the one who goes and bears our wounds, our sins. Behold my servant. He is rum ve nasah. He is high and He is lifted up. He is greatly exalted. And all of a sudden we see within the book of Isaiah that terms that are unique to Yahweh Himself are being predicated on this other figure as well. In a way, frankly, that's quite shocking and stunning. The servant also is room. In other words, the servant is sharing in the very identity of the one God. Oh, there's more that I wanted to tell you. Um, the Word and the Spirit, who are in the Old Testament are not just created intermediaries, but actually immediate emanations and agents of His presence and His power. And then the last one, which I just find so fascinating, Ezekiel chapter 1. Here the prophet goes into the throne room of God, and he says that he sees one on the throne who has the figure of the likeness of a man. 
I mean, Robert Jensen uh, uh, wrote a commentary on Ezekiel recently. And he said, do you want to know why um, this, the, uh, Ezekiel saw one on the throne who had the figure like the Son of Man? Uh, because Jesus is a man. That's why. Because what you see there in the book of Ezekiel, what you see in these embodied forms of God in the Old Testament are anticipations. A kind of a creating of anticipation, joyful anticipation for something that in time would come out in fullness in the particular incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, a fully man. Well, my time's gone. But what's the point? The point is, the Old Testament itself creates a kind of framework that anticipates for us, let me, let me use this term, it's an even better term, that pressures on us a kind of anticipation that God is one, but there's also a plurality within this oneness that in time will be revealed more fully and more concretely. All right. Do we have time? I don't even know what the time is. Yeah. I've never been able to define Holy Ghost. Can you give me some quick definition? All these years in the church, and I, I couldn't define it for somebody. Like the, what the, who the Holy Spirit is? Holy Spirit. What is that? Um... <laughs> Well, um, you know, within the Old Testament, it's the, it's, it's the very, it's the, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is the means by which God creates the world in Genesis 1. And again, it's not just sort of an emanation, but it is, it is an agent within the divine being. Um, the way in which Augustine talked about it is with that, within that analogy of love, that you have both the lover, the loved, and then love itself that binds us. The Father is the lover. That Jesus is the love, the Holy Spirit is, 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 Jesus is the loved, and the Holy Spirit is the love that binds them together. But I think what we have within the New Testament as we move is a recognition that the Holy Spirit in His personhood, right, as, as, a, as a being, as a person within that one God, is the means by which Jesus is made present and manifest to His people. Um, this is why in the Gospel of John, some bizarre things are said that are really hard to get our head completely around. Like, um, when the Father goes away, I mean, when I go away, um, I'm going to send my Spirit to you, and you will do greater works than I've even done. I mean, it's, it's, in other words, the Holy Spirit is the agent by which God continues to execute the, the person and the work of Jesus and, and His people. So there's a mystery there. I mean, as far as what... you know. To try to define the Holy Spirit in His essence, that's a, that's a very difficult thing to do. There's mystery here. But to define Him in His work and what He does, I mean, His primary work is to bring the, benef the benefits and the goodness of what Christ has done both to the lost and, and, and to His people. Um, I wanted to ask you, what was the Athanasian response to Proverbs 8? Yes, the Ath and Basil of Caesarea was very helpful on this as well. So you had these Cappadocian fathers, Basil of Caesarea, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, and then, um, and, and then um, oh, I'm forgetting the other one. Uh, anyway, his response to that was, we need to make a distinction within the Bible between names and identities that have to do with being and that have to do with relationship. That's a very important distinction. And then when we talk about being, it's by the way, when we talk about the Son, being eternally generate of the Father in our Nicene Creed. I want to talk about this in week three. Uh, but when we say that the Son is eternally generate of the Father, that's a very important thing to say that Jesus is the offspring of the Father because how can one be an offspring of something that's eternal without sharing in the very substance of that which He is the offspring of? 
I think that's the point that's being made. So when you come to something like Proverbs, you're dealing there with a name of relation. Jesus is in relation to the Father, the Son. That is the relation. That's not a distinction in being or essence, but that is a distinction in relation. It's also why, and again, every heretic has their, has their Bible verse. But you have this sort of language of subordination within the Gospels as, as well. Jesus says, I don't do anything of my own accord. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Jesus is really praying to someone else, really. But those are kind of, that's the identity of their relation to one another. It's, that, that's not to be collapsed with, um, with the naming of their being, of the, of the essence. And those are very important distinctions that I think help make some sense hermeneutically of what's going on without falling off the cliff on either side. When you were talking about what Jesus said to the rabbis that I have revealed my name to you, and then you said it's exemplified by the Passion. Uh, The Passion took place after the fact of that statement. So I'm just wondering, since that took after is it possible that when he said, I've revealed to you the name of God, that he may have been referring to something other that he said earlier on at the last meal when he talked about love and he said, remember me and remember this concept of love which he equated with God to you, which would be a different connotation. Yeah, I think um, that, that's, that's very helpful. And I think the issue at play here is, and again, I'm thinking here somewhat abstractly and theologically, but what's important is to never separate the person and the work of Jesus. So when the issue that you're bringing up there, I wouldn't want to treat what's going on at Calvary as a, as a kind of episode within the life of Jesus that's separated from what precedes and what comes after, but rather to recognize that what we're dealing with here is the totality of his person and work. So the revelation of the divine name, I do think in time, this is Philippians 2 as well, right? he hands over the name, which is above every name, how do we know this? He, he was obedient to the form of death, even death on the cross. So the cross is a very central point in this. But the cross is not to be abstracted and isolated from all that comes before. And I think you're very right on that with the notion of love and giving to others. Um, that, that's, that's really at the core of God's revelation of his own being as well. So I wouldn't want to play those over against one another. I'd, wanna, I'd like to see them, the person and work, come together. Yeah. Good question. Is this the last one? Okay. Um, what would you say to my coworker? Um, she's very devout. She's, I guess, what you call Jesus only. She says Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And when we get to heaven, we see God on the throne, we'll see Jesus on the throne. What, um, out of curiosity, um, is your coworker identified in a Christian church or? Well, she's in a, a Pentecostal denomination. You know, I know not all Pentecostals believe that. But. Yeah, no, they don't. Um, you know, I don't know what I would say. I mean, in other words, there's a sense in which um, the role in, of, of tradition and Christian theology through the ages of the church continues to have a constraining voice on the way in which we understand these things. In other words... I don't come to the Bible with no apparatus for reading. I come to the Bible with an apparatus that I think was handed on to us in the early church, what we call the great tradition. That can be corrected and amended by the Bible. I'm still Protestant on that. 
but it has a very high place, I think, in shaping the way in which we read read the Bible. So I would just have to sit down with your colleague and say, well, let you know, let's just look at the Bible and see where um, where it is that you you know where where it is within the Bible that you're making that kind of argument, um, and, and and begin there. I, I'm not. I'm not all that interested, frankly, in being that defensive of the doctrine of the Trinity in an apologetic way because there's a sense in which I can't. In other words, we present it. A lot of the doctrine of the Trinity is saying what we cannot say. In other words, God is not like that. He's not like that. He's not like that. But then when we start to say what He is, we're more careful there because we guard ourselves by saying what He's not. But we're more careful when we begin to make positive statements about who He is and so I, I'm, I'm just somewhat careful and reticent um, to have to sort of prove it. I, I can't do that. But I wouldn't mind sitting down with her over the Bible and saying, you know, help me think through that. Who is Jesus praying to? Um, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Do you think that the Father um, took on human flesh as well? 